I'm Aaron Armstrong. I'm Pete Moran. And I'm Brandon Lede. And we love to watch. We love to watch ELO Rescue a Movie. Musical haters unite. I have a fun combo of Mushmouth and um, Tone Deaf. It's uh, just, <laughs> just a lovely pattern. Peter, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to welcome the listeners to the podcast. You don't need to explain yourself. Okay. Hey, Brandon. Hey, hey buddies. Brandon, how you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, welcome for joining us on a movie that I thought was a completely different movie. Um, <laughs> I thought, I'll get it right out. So we're doing Xanadu. It's the last week in our... For the most part, poorly thought out musical May. Uh, <laughs> next, we've got a lot of negative feedback. Listenership is down. No one's happy. Uh, but <laughs> as you heard last week, uh, Peter liked a musical. So you know what? I feel like we accomplished something. Uh, and so this was going to be the big finale uh, with fellow musical hater Brandon Ledeon. I actually requested Brandon appear on this because everything I knew about Xanadu was that it was from little clips I've seen. And I made the assumption, based on the font, the cover, that it was like a crazy, poorly made musical science fiction movie set in some sort of weird, like, Flash Gordon universe. And that felt like it was perfectly up Brandon's alley. It's not that... <laughs> It's not at all. <laughs> no, it's more of a fantasy piece, but it is trashy enough to earn my love and respect, though. I, oh, I will good. mount a f- defense for the shitty movie. Oh, good. <laughs> we, I guess I... And you're a musical hater in general, so I guess even though I can't remember last time I was this wildly incorrect on the premise of a movie, um, <laughs> but I guess that tells you a little bit about what kind of movie that it is, that seeing these little bits... It was like, oh, I bet it's like that one weird uh, scene in Space Mutiny where at the future bar, but for the entire movie and then with songs. Yeah, there's enough lasers uh, and like segmented screen wipes to trick you into thinking it might be sci-fi, but that's definitely way off. It is, like, look yeah. at the fucking poster. The fucking poster has like this like uh, hand-drawn thing that looks like a spaceship or a cloud city on the cover. Yeah. And then finding out that it's just a nightclub is kind of <laughs> disappointing. And the movie opens with that Universal logo uh, sort of updated so that the airplane going around the globe turns into a spaceship UFO. and gets faster and faster. Yeah. Which is maybe the coolest part of the movie, <laughs> to be honest. Oh, I, I'd strongly uh, disagree. disagree. So, yeah. So, before we get into it, though, I have a dumb game, uh, per usual. But, Brandon, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience, however you would like. My name is Brandon Leday. I am from New Orleans, and I run a film criticism collective called swamp flicks uh there's about four to five of us usually uh we update every day on the blog and we have a bi-weekly podcast that's been more regular now than it's ever been before um and we cover a lot of the same kind of genre films and sort of like trashy camp pleasures that y'all cover on this show and I love Swamp Flicks. Uh, ah. Swamp Flicks is a very, very fun show. You guys have, a, I think, a similar temperament. You're not out to bury anything. Um, but if it needs to get buried, you'll do it. <laughs> I had to say some nasty things about Barbwire the other day, and it really hurt my heart. Because <laughs> I wanted to love it. I haven't seen it, but I feel your pain. Because it seems like something I would love. Like a, a trashy remake of Casablanca. Like <laughs> It's two-thirds of a great... Uh, Casablanca trashing like it really trashes up the joint 
in a spectacular way for the first two thirds of the movie, and then it just deflates like a balloon. I bet it's oh, kind of no. like uh, it's probably like the 1994 Judge Dread or 1995, <laughs> where you always think it's going to be trashy fun, even like if you haven't seen it in a couple years from your memory, and then you watch it and you just go, "Oh, this is this is just boring." Yeah, a lot of those movies like start out really strong and then they lose uh, a lot of steam once they realize that they have to be an actual movie and like deal with a plot. <laughs> like all the production design wears off once you start like getting bogged down in like the details. Yeah, or include Rob Schneider. <laughs> yep. And, and you're you're exploding out of the gate, especially a movie like Judge Shred, you're exploding out of the gate with everybody's goodwill where it should be, which is with the movie. And then uh, you you can throw a weird, goofy action scene or something in people's faces, and they'll be like, "Okay, that's kind of fun." And then uh, <laughs> it's like, "Hey, why don't they wander around a desert planet for forty minutes?" Oh, <laughs> just Rob Schneider and a increasingly frustrated Sylvester Stallone. So many um, genre movies get lost wandering around in the desert. I wonder what that is. It's very uh, strange. <laughs> oh yeah, you're right. It's just cheap to fi- film like in the wastelands of California. Yeah, we can ju- we can just go film on Gary's lawn for like half this movie. <laughs> uh, so anyway, so yeah, before we get started, uh, we're gonna we're gonna talk about Xanadu. Uh, I do have a game, so I actually started with a different game and then decided that it wouldn't be that fun. But I will tell you what that was gonna be. So I for years, uh, ELO did a lot of the music for this movie. And I, for years, thought I disliked ELO because I thought they were BTO, Bachman Turner Overdrive. And I'm like, I heard someone cover Sweet Talking Woman at the end of that song. They say, ELO, I love all your albums. I'm like, I really like that cover of Sweet Talking Woman, but I bet I wouldn't like the original because I'm not a fan of Bachman Turner Overdrive. And it seemed like a weird song just beat wise and then somewhere around college i heard strange magic watching virgin suicides and i downloaded it on kazaa and it was a different band that sang it on kazaa not yellow so it took it took me a while before i realized who yellow was that they sang like you know mr blue sky and um uh, evil woman and then got into a lot of their albums so very weird confusion and i was going to do a game where i said Song titles of BTO songs, ELO songs, and then LFO songs, and make you guess <laughs> who who sang it. So that that's that was dumb. Uh, this is going to be dumber. Just warning all of you. You so, totally could have tricked me with the BTO uh, quiz. So I was hoping this is again always always just tell what you're thinking at all times when coming up with podcast games. I was hoping the LFO songs were going to have funnier titles and stand out. They don't. There's nothing. They just <laughs> they're all kind of generic titles if you go past the hits. So it just didn't really work. That's my favorite part of every Price is Right episode um, when uh, Bob Barker comes out and uh, he s- explains like the process behind developing the game for like 15, 20 minutes. Uh, <laughs> and then he's like, OK, now we get to play the game. I'm, honestly, I, was, I knew where you were going with it. I was trying not to spit out my drink because <laughs> I had this image of like him, him describing the first couple versions of Plinko. <laughs> <laughs> They didn't come together. <laughs> Honestly, I'm, la- I'm laughing at him having to put together like more than two sentences in a row. And then we thought we'd use rubber balls, and that did work. <laughs> just, just to an increasingly perplexed audience. Uh, all right. Um, 
Let's so, have some fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, I don't know why that broke me, but uh, <laughs> so Brandon is actually this is only Brandon's second time on, and but we we talked to him it's all a travesty, the time, man. It is a travesty. We talked to him all the time, like uh, you know, some of our guests that we've had a lot a lot of times, like Zach and Rick and uh, Dustin and Joseph. We talked to a lot outside this podcast as well. I, I would consider I would consider them friends. Brandon, the same thing, except he. Not only hasn't been on as much as those other people, he doesn't really have a thing, you know? <laughs> like, like Zach has this thing where, like, he always sounds tired and, like, he doesn't want to be on the podcast. <laughs> and Dustin has this thing where, like, he doesn't want to be anywhere ever. And <laughs> Joseph has this thing where he is, like, older than us and likes to tell us about things that happened before we were born. And Rick has this thing where he gets really drunk. <laughs> uh, so like everyone has a thing and brandy you don't have a thing i feel like so just we're gonna, we're, decency so instead of like letting one happen organically i want to just do, run through the intro of the show with this idea of a thing that you that you that, that this is your thing so we don't need to address the thing but we're just gonna like do the intro under the assumption that this is your thing and maybe it'll catch on so I, I have eight of these, nine of them. Oh, God. <laughs> so, so we're just going to go through some of them pretty basic, and we'll see what we'll see what sticks in our second listener poll, and that's going to be your thing from now on. All right. Okay, so the first one is the, the guy who's only on Peter and uh, Aaron's podcast because our parents made us. <laughs> As in, your parents guilt tripped you into inviting me on a second time. Exactly. So, so let's just do the intro. Like, hey, Brandon, how's Dave? <laughs> I'm assuming. Oh, your dad's know doing great. <laughs> no, I think I think you're blowing this already. I think my thing my... is that I'm bad at improv. I think. This... So okay, well that one didn't work. Nope. Let's go to the next Let's one. Move along. How about guys? Podcasts we're jealous of and inviting you on our pa- podcast is a passive aggressive power play. <laughs> that might work because uh, we record everything in mic, and I would love to have both of you on, but it would require you coming to New Orleans. So <laughs> okay, so yeah, so we'll we'll do that. So hey, hey Brandon, uh, second time guest of We Love to Watch. Uh, thanks for joining Aaron and Peter. Zero time guests of Swamp Flicks. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've been trying to pencil you in. I just can't fit you into a good slot on the show. When Trump said drain the swamp, I guess he meant as your good buddies as as guests. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you have a show and like we have a show and like, you know, it's fine. We can have our, our own shows, but like... <sighs> Like, uh, you know, you want to, like, compare listenership numbers later, maybe? Or number of episodes? Uh, oh! Have you yeah. Actually, yeah. Man now. That's where oh! I get swamped. <laughs> <laughs> have you talked about Xanadu on your show? Um, oh, did we beat you to that one again? <laughs> You've been zapped. I did get you on Teen Witch. That was, like, my one triumph over the last year. Mm. That was awesome. That was, really, that was really good. You beat us on Possession, too. But, uh... You know, we we keep score of those things. <laughs> I, I will say on listenership, y'all definitely got me swamped. We really love your show. It's a shame that I can't throw shade even as a joke. <laughs> Next one is the guy that we both secretly want to fuck. <laughs> hey, uh, hey, hey Brandon. Brandon. Thanks. Hey, babies. 
Aaron, be cool. Aaron, be cool. I didn't know if we want to fuck them together. We didn't have that conversation. <laughs> Maybe we're in competition? Define both. Do you mean it like individually? Well, I, yeah, I don't know. Is there a line? Someone's <laughs> got to operate the camera. <laughs> That'd be weird that we... Ter- those terrifying VR helmets that look like uh, bug eyes. Oh, God. So you capture, let's capture it in 3D. How much GoPro sex do you think is being had in the world right now? Um, not enough. Not enough. <laughs> I need. We, should, we need to get those numbers up. I need to make sure that by twenty thirty seven that there are children that grew up uh, on the on the GoPro porn and now like I can't have sex with anybody that's not wearing a camera on their head. <laughs> I don't. I don't think I've ever seen GoPro porn. I don't think you've lived first person porn. It was probably done with some sort of GoPro. Okay. I can't get aroused unless I have, like, slight motion sickness, so it's been a a new era for me. (laughs) I really had my awakening the last five years. (laughs) Oh, this is amazing. Uh. I'm no longer jerking off in one of those spinning office chairs. I I have someone doing the work for me. (laughs) Your wife. Your wife. Your wife. Your wife. Your wife. Because, like, why do we have to go fucking the zipper at the fair again? <laughs> and you're like, it's a fucking. <laughs> this next one is kind of redundant because I feel like it spilled into it, but it was supposed to be then the guy who we openly want to fuck. But <laughs> I feel like that happened naturally in the first hey, guy. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> yeah. Let's just. Re- yeah. Peter, when you're editing, if you could just cut everything we already said and put it right in again, that would be perfect. That'd be great. <laughs> um, okay. Well, so let's go to another one. Uh, the guy who we know is a Trump supporter, but it was too late to book someone else, and we don't want to call him out directly for it, but it's definitely affecting all of our interactions. <laughs> <laughs> Is this like one of those things where they like uh, trick tax evaders into going to like a, a small night class and then everyone gets arrested? Yeah, you got like, like fake baseball tickets. <laughs> so hey, Brandon. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, you know, features a female protagonist. So hope you liked the movie. <laughs> hey, uh, uh, Brandon. I uh, know there weren't many uh, people of color in this movie. I'm sure that was was fun for you. <laughs> Um, this is going to be a short episode. <laughs> <laughs> if if anything, I can just like shorten the game by telling you my two things are that I'm terrible at improv and I have terrible taste. I feel like that's just coming out naturally here. I have to say, I think that makes it better because if you are if you are implying that we are good at improv, uh, I think <laughs> you're on the wrong podcast. We're as good as improv as we are at accents. <laughs> Like I'm not gonna be able to suppress my delight that that drag queens popped up in the uh, in the dress up montage in the middle of this movie. So I don't know if I, how long I could play the Trump supporter game. <laughs> in the dress up montage, there is uh, one moment that the movie decided to be sexy for about three seconds, and there's a woman <laughs> dancing on a pole that's like off the ground, and I'm like, wait, is this movie not for kids? <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, I agree. There's that moment, and then every time Gene Kelly talks, yeah, <laughs> and then Don Bluth drew that very fuckable fish too. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, I want to fuck that fish. I mean, uh, to be fair, uh, right. third thing about Brandon: low standards for fuckable fish. <laughs> yeah, the the guy who would easily who we both suspect would fuck a cartoon fish. <laughs> You found my thing. 
All right. Uh, so I got three more. Uh, the guy who's just on the show to promote a Christian album of Newsboys covers that he's been producing. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Brandon, we're really excited to have you on, man. You, uh, How are you spreading the good word this month? You got anything to promote? <laughs> I found the light and it came from a thrift store cassette. <laughs> I'm here to share it with you. <laughs> it's good to know that uh, Newsboys made no money off of that, that purchase. <laughs> I'm not in it for the money. That's true. No. <laughs> they're gonna get the, they're gonna get paid in the afterlife. Brandon, as someone who's been producing a cover of Newsboy songs, is though. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if you pirate him, he will bury you. There's got to be a way to make them subversive, right? Like do some kind of like chopped and screwed Newsboys uh, remixes or something. It would be mostly making it sound like they're just erotic love songs talking to God. <laughs> Just add some moans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, honestly, if you just flip the chorus of that one song, it sounds more profane. Like, Jesus Christ, I'm not ashamed. (laughs) 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 It's like people that mistake, like, the Neutral Milk Hotel song for, like, a Christian song because it keeps saying Jesus Christ is a profanity. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like some uh, punctuation can change any of their songs at this point. Because it's just... yeah, it's just, I love you, Jesus Christ. And it's like, oh, he loves Jesus Christ. Like, I don't think that's what he's singing. <laughs> but okay. Whatever to get you to not listen to Newsboys anymore. All right. Guy who can't successfully pronounce the name of the movie, and at first we think it's a bit, but keep getting more and more suspicious that it's not. And this really annoys Peter specifically, but Aaron uses it, uses it as a chance to commiserate and educate. Exonada? Uh, oh, yeah. Brandon. Yeah. Um, so, on, on that We're here note, to help. Uh, it's called, yeah, the movie, Xanadu is the movie. Um... Uh, it's pronounced like Xanada, y'all. <laughs> Brandon, we're here to help. Like, words are made up. So, if you think it's a Xanada, you, you, you know what? You do you. You Xanadu your own thing. Xanadu yeah. you Z- do. Yeah, Xana, don't let Peter get under your skin. <laughs> I just assume that when Coleridge, uh penned Kubla Khan he was just picturing the future pleasure dome of Canada (laughs) (laughs) and just cut the letters like slightly off was that a thousand years ago (laughs) yep (laughs) (laughs) on the dot Uh, alright last one Uh, oh my god (laughs) last one the guy who Aaron is trying to audition as a replacement for Peter what (laughs) (laughs) nothing let's just let's just move on do you want to talk about Xanadu yes please Xanadu sufficiently uncomfortable oh uh, yeah i'm gonna be squirming for the rest of this uh, uh i don't remember who's five second or uh, i'm gonna go five okay go ahead okay so uh xanadu you like this movie i do um and i like it for a very specific reason that i don't normally like musicals like is that is that your five second recap Brandon? <laughs> oh i don't know i thought that was a prompt my yeah, bad go ahead Brandon. <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm skipping right over your uh, normal yes. format. No, Circumvent no. the entire fucking format. <laughs> yeah, this is chopped. And, this is chopped and screwed. We love to watch. Yeah, yeah. It's just, I was just told a minute ago that I could uh, audition swamp, to take over Peter, and I think just I just did that in action. Swamp flicks all over the place. Just get your swamp flicks in our We Love to Watch. And and uh, Aaron is reeling you in brutally as your manager. <laughs> I'm trying to train you. What, what what do I care? What do I care? Uh, I, I, I'm, on, I'm on the way out. Oh, he's not ready yet, but a couple more appearances, and he'll get it. <laughs> this is a train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'll do 90-second recap. So first, 
uh, they're alive, uh, and they jump out. By they, I mean all of these Greek sirens? Uh, muses. Muses. They're, they're, they're muses. You muses. don't find out that till later, but they, they jump out of this brick wall that they're graffitied on to yellow. And then the one played by Olivia Newton-John roller skates around a bit. She finds this struggling artist uh, who's struggling for a reason. Uh, he's not great. But she kisses him, and he's like, whoa, that was weird. And then he keeps seeing her as he also has to go and back to his job uh, painting record covers. And he's like, well, I guess I give up on my life. And then he meets her roller skating. He's like, oh, I like her. And then there's more singing. And then he also meets Gene Kelly, who's like an old guy fishing at the beach, who also gave up on his dream to open up a big 50s nightclub. And he also remembers Libby Newton-John's character. And they're like, you know what? Let's fucking do it. Let's open this goddamn nightclub. Meanwhile, the dude is like, hey, I love you, Muse. And then goes and fights God through words. And God's like, nope. But okay, you can have the muse. And so they open Xanadu and there's so much singing and dancing uh, that turns out to be a figment of uh, our main character's uh, imagination. But then he sees a waitress that looks like Olivia Newton-John and's like, fine. <laughs> it's a, it is exactly that. It's a love letter to settling. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's, 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 a, it's actually a love letter to anyone that looks the same or similar to someone that you are attracted to is basically the same person. <laughs> that is true. They came from the same model line, from the same factory, from the same year. With the same Aussie accent. Yeah, the same lightly coated Aussie accent. Is it just me, or is Olivia Newton-John um, stifled in this movie? Like, almost smothered in this movie? I feel like she is, and I hate using this phrase because I feel like it's been used way too much to the point that even the creator of the phrase wrote a whole op-ed about, please stop using it. But if she's not the definition of a manic pixie dream girl, I don't know what is. She's a manic pixie dream ghost. <laughs> she's a magic pixie dream ghost. Oh, uh, there it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, her whole function in the movie is literally just to inspire men to do better things and then leave once they're improved. And but she like, has, like, no character arc for herself. But by constantly trolling them, like, every response to anything he says is, like, if it was anyone other than, like, charming, wonderful Libby Newton-John, it'd be like, that that guy's a dick. Because everything <laughs> is like, what should we do here? I don't know. What would you do here? And she's like, he's like, oh, man, that really opened my mind. See, I wasn't all that charmed by her in this movie in the scenes where she wasn't dancing. So uh, I found so I, whenever she would say that, I'd be like, "You are a dick." You'd be like, "Oh, yeah, I'm at my sister's house. Oh, I live with my sisters. Uh, where do you live? The second floor." Like all that shit was grating to me. <laughs> See, I actually didn't find it all that grating, just because I think that she is like so light and effervescent that. It comes off as, and also I think because our lead is the fucking worst. Um, this, he's, <laughs> he like, he's like, he's like, he's like Ninja Three, the domination level of male lead. <laughs> I I think like half of my notes are about Olivia Newton-John, and half of them are about Gene Kelly, and I like maybe have two things to say about the lead. He is so useless in this. Uh, he's good in Warriors, uh, which is a different movie. <laughs> Yeah. And came out, like, right before it, too. It was, like, yeah. the year before this came out. And he's good as, like, a stoic, tough dude in that. He looks like if Andre the Giant fucked Michael Rooker. 
I love that his dream is to paint large. Okay, so one, he's already living someone's dream, which is to paint fucking post like hand drawn art for movies which is like this beautiful lost art, doesn't want to do that. He fucking hates it, despite the fact that he seemingly can come in and out like it's a call center. He uh, he wants to draw big versions of record albums for record store fronts. Like, that's his big dream at the beginning. I think yeah. he doesn't know what he wants to do. He, like, has no inspiration, and that's why Olivia Newton-John needs to come in and, like, light a spark under his ass. Uh and she does – she sort of kills two birds with one stone because she does the same for Gene Kelly, who's sort of like listless in his old age in the same way. Well, you kind of realize what got – what why he quit his job because 1980s Hugh Jackman, his boss, basically explains the how he got there to the entire audience. The first scene of him going back to the record company – I actually really like any scene in a movie that is just not even an attempt to conceal exposition. And every fucking sentence is someone going, well, didn't you leave because Mr. Johnson did this? I did. But then I decided that I'm going to have to do this for the rest (laughs) of life. And then the boss comes in and he's like, hey, I gave you your job back because you begged and plead. But if you're going to start showing up late, then I'm not. You know, it was like every sentence was explaining uh, everyone's relationship in that room and why he's taking this job back. But he's still going to be a real asshole to his boss. So it's like, everyone, do you guys get where we're at? I know we started with an ELO song and some dancing, but this is, we're going to go down to this workplace fucking boring drama. Oh my God. (laughs) The fact that it didn't, it started out as this like dude drawing in a studio. I was like, so he's going to like imagine a big kingdom and he's going to go there, right? Like he's going to imagine a cloud city and he's going to Oh my God. That's what I thought. Yeah. And, it's, and then these women start coming alive. It's like, cool, they're going to – and there's that great sequence where they play ELO, which we need to talk about uh, ELO a lot in this because uh, they saved the movie. There's this, like, great sequence that sort of illustrates the uh, animation design of this movie. It's just, like, neon colors outlining the people that are in motion. And it looks kind of cool in this one sequence, I think. Uh, trashy cool. Yeah. I think it looks great every time they use the neon outline. I'm totally into that. Yeah, I agree. It's basically the first good scene in the movie is an ELO music video. Oh, totally. And this is like right before MTV was a thing. So you have movies like this and like Tommy and I mean, obviously the Beatles movies from like way before it. They're like trying to figure out what like music motion picture looks like. And Teen Witch. Oh, for sure. Teen Witch as well. (laughs) Although that was nine years later. It's a hard thing to figure out because the aesthetic for rock music is a little different than the aesthetic for more classical music show tunes and such. So, like, they did have to figure out, like, a new way to show this new type, not new, but newish type of music, even though this is, like, pretty much towards the death of disco, like, it's 1980. And ELO was already kind of like, this album sold really, really well. The Xanadu soundtrack sold really, really well. But ELO was kind of like becoming a band that people would make fun of as sort of like a lame, lame rock band. That's what I love about this movie, though, to not not to like spoil anything, but uh, that they're trying to smash like old Hollywood classic musical aesthetic against this like fresh new disco excitement and it just doesn't work it doesn't at all I find that tension like so fascinating like I love it when a movie is like openly commercially trying to like sell you something and it just doesn't jive Uh, so I want to circle back to that and a lot of the other music scenes I think we should actually start by letting our audience know 
where we're at with this movie because obviously I know we're start talking and probably giving some clues, but I don't think any of us had ever seen this before. So, all, like I said, I, I mentioned at the onset that I thought this was a real different movie, but I'm positive on it. I really am. And ELO is a lot of the reason why. But the last half hour of this movie, which we're going to talk about in more detail, is kind of the movie that I expected for the entire thing, where it gets super weird and cheesy and over the top and neon and these big dance production numbers that are set to to nobody and just a lot of weird choices that I think I said earlier in this um, in this month that I'm like I'm expecting a the equivalent of a good bad movie and I think for the last half hour and 40 minutes uh it does that with some really great music but so much of that first 50 minutes is so boring and so uninteresting with with a few ELO songs uh, and good moments splashed in. So I, I'm actually going to come down overall positive on this movie. Um, but yeah, I definitely want to talk a lot more about ELO and about uh, some of the the very bizarre choices they made. But Peter, what do you think of this movie overall? So we'll get into the ELO thing more. Uh, but I saw this movie as soon as I realized this movie was essentially like a bunch of musical scenes stitched together and wasn't going to have any like strong dramatic through line. I was like, okay. I'm going to take this thing as all surfaces and, like, kind of enjoy it on that level. From that perspective, even that hampered my enjoyment of the movie because I only really like one or two of the Olivia Newton-John songs and all of the ELO songs. So if I loved, like, almost all the songs in the movie, it would be fine because it would help power me through the really boring parts. But, like, it feels like you're in a desert in the middle of the movie with no ELO to save you. I uh, ended up, like you said, like I ended up ending the movie on a really like uh, strong, positive feel. Like it, it felt invigorated the way musicals are supposed to make you feel at the end of the movie. But then I was like, oh yeah, I walked away from the movie in the middle. Like, do I do I just finish this tomorrow? Like, do I watch this in like three chunks of thirty minutes? <laughs> like, and then instead I just got high and watched the end of the movie and I had a great time. <laughs> uh, Brandon, what do you what do you think of this movie overall? And Brandon, we should say, I think we kind of alluded to it, but so part of, part of the reason you're on this month when we were planning this month is that you dislike musicals and we were trying to find uh, guests that both liked musicals and disliked musicals. And uh, there's, you know, I don't feel like there's that many of our previous guests or people we know that really dislike musicals in the same way that Peter does. And you mentioned that you did. And that's why we were especially like, oh, we have to get Brandon on this month. So why don't you tell us just very quickly why you dislike musicals in general and then why this one clearly worked for you even a little better, obviously better than Peter. And and it sounds like a little bit more than me as well. Liz actually on your Teen Witch episode was kind of like my champion for like voicing <laughs> like my discomfort with musicals. Uh, but I think it kind of boils down to this like false earnestness and this like try hard earnestness that comes with like stage play, like show tunes uh, where you have to like belt out these emotions that are really like not something that are usually shouted that loud. Yeah. man. like quiet emotions. I get it. (laughs) Yeah. It's just like a really like, it just feels so fake and not, not any kind of way I can connect to. Um, But I think that works for Xanadu in the fact that the movie is, this sort of like blatant commercial object. Uh, it came out the same year as the Village People musical um, 
Can't Stop the Music, uh, which had the same thing where like they were trying to like sell uh, the village people on the backs of like it being a traditional musical with village people songs. Um, they had Caitlyn Jenner in, so it was like a uh, an Olympic athlete. Um, Steve Gutenberg was the star of the movie. Like, there's all these uh, things where they're like trying to sell the movie as a product to like the hip kids of today. Uh, <laughs> um, also, Teen Witch is another example where like um, like y'all were saying on that episode that they were p- pretty much just blatantly trying to make a Teen Wolf for girls. Um, and I really like when you can tell a movie is a business. Like, basically, the art of film is supposed to trick you into forgetting that these things have to make money to keep going on. Um, and I really like when they kind of fuck up and you sort of, like, blatantly are confronted with the fact that you're watching this, like, commercial product. Um and I think this movie is more fun in like a fascinating kind of way where you're like watching them try to sell you the idea that disco can be adapted to this like old Hollywood musical product and it just doesn't work. Like my, my favorite scene in this movie is when they try to smash together like literally an old 40s uh, like swing, num- big band swing number with like an, a modern rock song by the tubes. And they try to synthesize those two songs together, and it just doesn't jive at all. You just sort of left in the mess. Yeah. Did did you know that when those two bands hit together, uh, a shooting star shot out from this is like a backstage thing, shot out from backstage, and uh, it landed somewhere in Hollywood, and Girl Talk was born? Um, I really like Girl Talk. Actually, so let's yeah, let's get into that scene because I've had that fucking song in my head more than any other song from this movie, and it's not an ELO song. I think it is cacophony. So yeah, it is. And at first, I was mocking towards it, and I feel like the refrain gets in your head. So I listened to like I actually listened to this album more than any other album. I gotta tell you guys, the song has completely grown on me. I think it's good. <laughs> You're a sick bastard. <laughs> like, I honestly think it's good. You bought it hook, and line, and sinker, you bastard. It, it got me. Like, and I actually really like that scene. Um, at first, it started really cheesy, where they're, like, doing, like, this faux battle of the bands and the battle of the arrows thing. And it was really cheesy and a lot of fun in that way. But I kind of like that scene of those two, like when they start sliding together and they all become part of the same band and these, these songs that are nothing alike complement each other. I agree, Brandon. It is clearly meant to try to do the, let's take the musicals into the future. It's callously just trying to reinvigorate the musicals of the past and make people go like, this is like the same thing. Uh, but having said that, I think it works well. It's just so nakedly like the thesis of the movie. Yeah. But I feel bad because I myself was like, this is bullshit. <laughs> uh, and then it, five minutes later, I'm like, come on. Did I? Like, and I'm like, I want to listen to that song again. I, uh, I like, okay, to be positive on it, the. You don't need to be positive. It, 
I liked the visual of the two bands sliding together from across that massive stage, which is which yeah. is very cool. When they came together for a second, I was like, oh, it's kind of cool, like the electric guitars and hearing the horns and stuff. And I was like, wait a minute, this is fucking bullshit. They still needed to make everyone have a part when they switched over to the new section. And there are way too many people on the stage already. So then it becomes this, instead of big band, it becomes this like cancerous tumor band where it just won't stop growing. Maybe if you, like, had somehow magically stripped out members and, like, could prove that, like, two disparate sounds could sound together in, like, a microcosm. Instead, it was, like, it just formed this sort of, like, pleasant white noise to me that I was, like, yeah, I guess that's a, I guess that's a song. All right. Now that I'm thinking about this and hearing you describe that, like, I know why it worked for me. And it clearly only worked for both of you, ironically, at best. So, but I think it legitimately worked for me. And I think this may explain our general approach to musicals and why that scene won me over and that is i really like seeing like joy on screen uh and that's a kind of a weird emotion it doesn't come up all that often in movies uh i guess it does but it's like brief and i think people like dancing and singing is an easy way for them to express joy it's still acting it's still performative um, it's not, you know, when you see a band in concert playing the same songs over and over, maybe they're having fun. Maybe they were just putting on a really good show. But when, when I, when it seems like they are having a really good time playing their songs, I feel like I enjoy it more. And when those two aesthetics, fifties and eighties, and those two quote unquote bands combine, everyone really looks like they're having a fucking great time and they're looking at each other and they're smiling and they feel really happy. It feels like that they were able to meld these two uh, song, song styles and, and visual styles. And, and I, I think that's what works for me. Well, I'll say this, I'll say this in response. I get that, especially in movies, like it is really fun to have like the big Star Wars ending where it's just like a feel good party. Like even when I'm watching Phantom Menace, like every six or seven years, I get like mad about it when it gets that final party scene and everybody's having a good time. I'm like, I'm like, oh, it's kind of pleasant. The difference is like, I'm not enjoying the product that they're making what in that scene either. Like I'm not enjoying watching them have that celebration. So like the feeling of joy comes through, but it comes through kind of gross. Like I understand that like an arsonist probably gets sexual pleasure from starting (laughs) fires, but it doesn't mean that like when that happens, it's a good thing, you know? But, but I don't, so I would say that scene, it doesn't feel like anyone's actually having fun. And maybe that's the big difference. Like it, regardless of whether they are or aren't, I mean, they probably aren't actually having fun, but it's because they're not even really palpable. playing music. They're probably it's probably yeah. all dubbed in later. I so, imagine that was a nightmare to shoot that yeah. scene. Just the logistics of like melding those two things with that large of a cast, recording two different songs, and then like y'all said, physically sliding the stages together. Like that was probably like days long to shoot that. Oh my god! So <laughs> the idea of like someone keeping that exuberance uh, and that like happiness on their face the entire time while like doing that physically grueling work like that sounds so miserable to me and you can kind of feel the frustration on on the screen when like those two songs like i just find it kind of grating and sloppy uh and it's just so funny to me that the movie is like basing its whole aesthetic off this like mashup that just never really comes off 
if you're watching like a horror movie and you see a behind the scenes thing and they're like uh it's supposed to be a big scary scene but like uh you know kane hotter comes in and actually like hugs the little blonde girl you're like oh that's funny it's kind of cute uh, if you're watching a movie like this and you see behind the scenes, you see people like sweating and getting angry at each other that the concept's not working. You're like, oh, that's not the, the inverse isn't fun at all. I didn't sense the frustration. I sensed like, like the idea of these two bands figuring out that they could combine and form a stronger union. And I felt like that showed on the faces. Uh, I thought the camera finally moved a lot more like it did in some of the best musical scenes in this movie. Uh, you know, I, I really felt the joy. And maybe it's like, so I don't know how you guys feel about the scene, but I've heard so much shit about the the ending rap scene for Everybody Wants Some. I don't know. Have, are you guys pro or anti that? Not in the car, like over the end credits where they do a rap about the movie and what happened. Oh, that actually makes me want to watch the movie. I've seen the movie. I uh, I think as soon as the, the – I didn't watch the whole credits. I, as soon as the he sort of put his head down to the desk, I stopped watching. I really like okay. the movie, but I, I have not seen yeah. that scene. So, so over the end credits, eventually they all like they're not really in character. They're actually on the set, and they just keeps going to each of these people and they do a little rap for the camera. And I've heard a lot of people complain about that. I'm scene. glad I didn't see that. That sounds horrible. Well, see, that's the thing. I I actually felt like that raised that movie from four and a half stars to five stars for me because it looked like everyone was having a fucking blast. And the the plot summarizing rap song is like a lost art form. I think most movies should end on that. Well, and it's it's weird because every character does like a little scene doing it, and it's like the camera following them like in a fucking Beastie Boys video from the '90s. So there's you know it's just like sure shot, um, or, uh, or what? So what you want is the other one I'm thinking of, where they basically just walk towards the camera for the entire video. Uh, With that insane wide-angle lens. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like that, and I've heard so many people, like, roll their eyes like it's the kid rapping at the end of the fucking visit. Oh, man, I thought we were rid of that kid at the end of the visit. (laughs) Yeah, that that scene is terrible, but... You know, this that scene at the end of Everybody Wants Some just feels like a fun goof around that everyone is enjoying, and the song's somewhat catchy, and it's just goofy fun, and everyone, like, has a legitimate smile on their face. It's like when, when people break on Saturday Night Live or a comedian you feel really starts laughing. Like, I kind of love those little moments if it's not Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> Where I think that comes across in Xanadu is in later musical scenes. Like that first scene that we were talking about where you mash uh, the tubes up with the big band from the 40s. Uh, basically, you have Gene Kelly and uh, the dude from the Warriors sort of like imagining what their um, ideal club would look like. And they're sort of arguing like, oh, I want this and I want that. Those two things can't work together. And then supposedly it does at the end. Um, and Really, it is like frustrating watching them kind of argue back and forth. Uh, later, I mean, not not that long after, they decide that they need to dress up Gene Kelly in like new hip clothes for the opening of the um, club, and they bring him to this department store where all my these fa- punk mannequins scene. come to life. That's my favorite. That's so good. Yeah. My favorite scene as well, and I think that's when, like, the pure joy comes across. There's, like, lasers and drag queens and this giant, like, pinball machine, yeah. and Gene Kelly does a dress-up montage, which is something you usually see, like, preteen girls do in movies and not, like, men in their <laughs> 60s. No, I- it's so much fun. It helps that it is it is backed by what I would say is the best ELO song in this movie. I love All Over the World. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to lie, y'all. Like, I 
don't really care about ELO in this movie. Weird. <laughs> it's weird hearing y'all like to, like say that they saved the film because like all I hear is Dad Rock. I and that is that is so amazing much. to me, Brandon. If if someone says, "Oh, I like that song," who sang that song? Sixty percent of the time, it's ELO. That's so weird to me. I mean, I'm really like I'm kind of a snob when it comes to like this era of music. I really like you like BTO? a lot of like. I like like Devo and Kraftwerk and that about, kind of stuff. Like what about really synth heavy, like kind of like post punk weird stuff. This like radio rock from the, around this era all kind of sounds the same to me. That's that's insane. I think Yellow is is kind of this perfect nexus of stuff that I like, where it does have falsetto. It does have falsetto. That's the fun <laughs> thing is after this, I watched this movie. I watched. Uh, I listened to Yellow all fucking weekend. Um, oh my god because i was just like so pumped for it and i cannot hit the notes that jeff lynn can hit uh few humans can the elo is something that i sort of grew up on but not strongly enough that i have like an actual like nostalgia attachment to it in that sense but it is it is kind of lame and earnest and it is not like cool and that's like something that i like about it like i like that it's not like cool i like that it's very sweet and like straight ahead and it has this sort of like candy colored synth synth sounds and like i when it when it popped up in guardians of the galaxy i was legitimately like joyful like i was like in my i was like rocking in my seat for a few seconds i was like this is so fucking good uh, so i i i can't even imagine liking any of this movie without elo coming in to just to improve a lot of sequences and on top of that i think that they are almost amazing in their ability to craft catchy songs. Like it's insane. Th- there's nothing on this album of that are ELO songs. If you listen to a random ELO album, every single song is probably going to be catchy. Like somehow, I mean, they have their big hits, which are really good, but they have this amazing ability to even take like a bland love song. I feel like and make it extremely listenable extremely catchy you'll be humming it afterwards you know it's funny because john which actually doesn't really surprise me because uh john lennon i believe it was he heard mr blue sky and he said that if the beatles kept making music they would have eventually just started sounding like elo's mr blue sky (laughs) so and that actually made sense to me because like, I don't think ELO's as good as the Beatles, but the one thing when you're listening to Beatles songs and albums, even the experimental ones, you listen to all these songs and you're like, how did they make all these fucking songs so catchy? Like, that seems like not challenging, catchy, not that kind of thing where you listen to a few times and, you know, the, the melody and the beat gets under your skin. I actually find that most songs except extremely extremely catchy ones the first time i hear them i don't like them and it's like as i listen to them a couple more times and it gets in my head and there's a repetition all that kind of stuff like it it takes a lot for a song to connect with me instantly and the beatles and elo are examples of two bands where 95 percent of their songs immediately it's like oh i want to listen to that again right now i think listenable is like a great word for them because i do think that they make the movie like they fit the the aesthetic of the film very well, but I just can't connect with that like catchiness thing you're talking about. Like I've watched this film twice in the past week, 
and I can't sing you any like two lines of any of the ELO, ELO songs. The only like song that's actually catchy to me in this film is the um, the titular Olivia Newton John number at the end. That is a like, good. I, that's I don't ELO know too. What's wrong with me? Right, but I just hear Olivia Newton John singing. I don't know. <laughs> like I, I especially that um, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but there's like a Don Bluth aside where they just show like old Disney animation with the two of them swimming around as like animated fish and sort of like making love under the water. Well, uh, we know and- about your fish fucking predilection. <laughs> <laughs> they slowed it down to like this uh, Ario Speedwagon type like rock ballad and it oh. works so well for the cheesiness of the moment, mm-hmm. but it's sort of like vapor to me. Like I can't, I can't tell you what that song really sounds like after the fact. So I will, I will say that uh, one thing that I think Yellow gets kind of um, lumped in with, she, they get lumped in with a lot of like, yeah, like just either uh, Aria Speedwagon is so bad. Aria Speedwagon style like uh, ballads, or they get lumped in with just like synthy post disco, actually core disco uh, party music. And their albums are so well modulated, like Out of the Blue and New World Record in particular, and El Dorado, I guess. Those and three, the Xanadu soundtrack. And the Xanadu soundtrack are so well modulated because <laughs> the Xanadu soundtrack is not mod- modulated at all. It's all party songs <laughs> the whole time except for one. Um, so and then um, because their, their albums will start off like with a big rousing emotional song and then it'll be a party song and then it'll be something kind of in between. Like it kind of like goes in and out of a bunch of different styles. There'll be like a rockabilly style thing and then there'll be like something that sounds like more like a big band style thing. Like they have, they have such why I think their albums show off their style more than just like the four songs that you would hear on the radio or hear in Guardians of the Galaxy or whatever. I've got some great news for you, Peter. Brandon's not going to be the next host. (laughs) (laughs) We love to watch. I feel like my bridge to this kind of music is the cars. Like if this movie was like the cars, I probably would have remembered the songs a little better. And I think Uh, I do like the cars, too. They're too overplayed for me, although, you know, they make good music, but every song I feel like I've heard a million times. And Yellow was a perfect choice for this movie in terms of what they did, because they would like they did do the thing where they matched like a big band style and also an orchestra and also like modern synthy rock music. Like they kind of did have songs that were blending all those together and just leaning into one style for, versus another. Like they were a perfect choice for this this out this movie. I don't know if like like I like you point out during that that cartoon sequence, like them at their like most painfully earnest, like just like straight ahead, like this is just like a sweet dorky love song, like dad rock, like that fits so perfectly for the Don Bluth animated scene. They hit a lot of styles, is what I'm just rambling and rambling about. And I think that that don't walk away almost starts falling into that trap of like a lame music ballad and then it gets catchier and catchier and they do like some vocal inflictions and they change harmonies and they change keys a little bit i think i think maybe that's why elo works really well for me is i'm not i'm terrible talking about music so i might even be describing this wrong but they change keys a lot and 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 i think that adds like this level of complexity uh, around with their with their music and stuff like that that really that really gets under my skin and um it's kind of like how my favorite weezer song was always uh falling for you from pinkerton and they do this great thing at the end of the song where they totally change keys and it makes a really great song uh even better 
it's like Queen, like they're um very theatrical and like they have the same highs and lows of like opera, you know, like it's very ready for musical theater. Like I yeah. can see why someone, a producer thought that they could build a musical around that band. Um, even without like a strong script, they thought like, well, ELO is going to carry the movie. I, I wonder if y'all have any theories about why they would choose the tubes for their big like thesis uh, number where they mash up the two musical styles instead of ELO. Like, I don't know why they wouldn't actually just put the band that the whole movie is like riding on the back of, uh, except maybe the tubes look better for the camera. I have no maybe idea. Maybe Jeff Lynn really didn't want to be on camera. Like, I, it's it's hard to say. Like, maybe... Because uh, also, ELO could have just done one of their more straight-ahead rock songs. Like, I feel like having Jeff Lynn conduct a big band would be something that, like, he could very easily have figured out. Like, he could have very easily come in and be like, I want to be in one musical sequence in the movie, and it's this fantasy where I take two disparate styles and make them blend. And instead, it was... It it just didn't... I don't know why they didn't do that. Maybe he just wasn't interested. (laughs) I don't know. This is accidental. But I actually think having the tubes in there is a little more prescient, because um, while I like where the song goes... Especially the guitar riffs and the type of singing could I f- I feel like easily mistaken for like Poison or any one of those kind of like lame uh, one hit wonder eighties like quote unquote hard rock bands like hair rock yeah exactly and I think it so it actually ends up being kind of prescient because they're like this is the sound of the eighties and this movie was filmed in nineteen seventy nine. And you almost think they could have got it totally fucking wrong and been like, uh, so here's, you know, the village people or here's, you know, some other big disco band at the time. And they didn't. They kind of had they did a hair rock song. And that kind of is what today the 80s are known for. So it actually fits in really well with them trying to to guess in a lot of ways what what the 80s sound was going to be like, because it. I'm assuming it could it could easily fit in as some sort of yeah like poison Aerosmith B side. The strange thing about the tubes in this movie to me, um, kind of like a weird personal thing, but I watched uh, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains the same week I watched this, mm-hmm. and the of tubes uh, or multiple members of the tubes pop up in that movie as well, and they're playing these sort of like has been rockers that have been like on the road for too long. Um, and I don't want to spoil too much about the movie, but like it. It's kind of like the end of the road for them as a band. Um, and it was filmed around the same time as the, as Xanadu. And it's kind of interesting to me that, like, you know, you know, earlier I was talking about how this movie works as, like, a blatantly, like, commercial misstep. Uh, and it's funny that when you try to commercialize something that's hot at the moment, like y'all were saying disco was kind of on its way out already when they made this. Uh, they wanted to make this a roller skating movie. And apparently there were, like, two other films in production. They had to, like... Uh, rush this to completion to beat out. It's funny when they try to capture like something that's this commercial in a bottle and you have to work very quickly that by the time this came out the tubes were like kind of like not as fresh sounding as they probably should have been. Like that should have been like the sound of like rock and roll at the time. At that time maybe New Wave would have been more like what kids were interested in than, than like whatever was left of like disco or like late 70s hard rock and that's kind of what the tubes represent. I don't know, it definitely, but didn't it feel like, oh yeah, this is a generic 80s song, which works for for what they were trying to underline, that this is the sound of the quote-unquote 80s? 
I'm not sure generic is what they were looking for, though. Well, no, no, <laughs> I think I they were trying to make it sound super cool. <laughs> no, I, I don't I think it sounds as like hard edge and like uh, you know exciting as they wanted it to sound. Like it was supposed to be for the kids, yeah, and it sounds more like it's for their dads. So that I agree with, hundred uh, percent. Definitely is not like a revolutionary uh, sound that the '80s were going towards, but I mean, I think it captured. Uh, generic hair metal very well. I mean, if you want to see like a more straightforward like roller disco musical, the the Village People movie is a lot more faithful to that. I feel like Xanadu is like not even trying to do that. It's like trying to be futuristic. That's my favorite sentence anyone's ever said on this show. <laughs> you want to see a more faithful roller disco musical. <laughs> but uh, it's funny whenever you try to do like a futuristic movie and you're like being like as commercial and like genre film minded as possible, you always end up just like capturing the time by mistake instead. Like you make this like sort of generic version of the era. So yeah, it does feel like the epitome of like 80s rock, even though this was made in 1980. So that wasn't even like really a thing. <laughs> like that, that, that area is still being carved out in music at the time. But uh, they sort of like accidentally captured the time instead of like leaning into like what new sounds were probably being cooked up at the t- at the moment it's your cousin carl michaels brett have you heard the new sound <laughs> but like imagine a version of this movie where they try to mix like big band musicals with like black flag or something oh. like something even more abrasive and like for the kids <laughs> <laughs> it's probably a better thing that they got someone like the tubes that sounds a little more generic and like when you hear it you just think like that is rock and roll like that's like basic rock you know like yeah and i think there's actually i know television was like early 70s or not early 70s late 70s like 77 there uh marquee moon but it feels like even that direction would have been a little more guitar solo-y and like representative of probably at the very least the era that this movie was conceived have you seen um 20th century women not yet no Okay, that that soundtrack is is more of what I'm thinking of. Like that, they capture like the probably stuff kids were actually listening to at the time a lot more than this movie, which was sort of like feels like it was cooked up in like a producer's like boardroom. Uh, where they're like, so actually, let's talk about that for a second. So the director of this movie is a guy named Robert Greenwald. Oh yeah. Who is like, I've seen interviews with him much later for other purposes that we will reveal in a second if you don't know. But he is like the consummate, I'm just a Hollywood guy and I got to direct movies for a while. And now I'm going to devote all my money to my real passion after 20 years of like shrugs of movies. But I got to keep making them because I'm a rich white guy who has connections. Uh, so he eventually, after his last, like, narrative film, which was Steal This Movie in 2000, which actually kind of bridges the gap between his shrugs of movies and where he went, uh, was political low-budget documentaries. Like Pop Docs. But, like, they used the internet as a distribution method. Like, they didn't, they didn't get released to theaters, but they were, like, on streaming services early, and you could, like, get them. I remember I bought uh, – so his most famous movie is Outfoxed, which is the 2004 documentary on um, Fox News, which I got to tell you, if you're going to release an anti-Republican, anti-Fox News documentary in 2004, I probably bought it. <laughs> yeah, that's that – like, uh, a lot of people were riding on that Michael Moore wave around that time. Yeah, and it was, like, the election time and – 
you know, it felt like a lot of the stuff that we use now to discuss politics, like Twitter and Facebook, I mean, they were non-existent. So uh, that kind of constant news stream that you were getting about like a political party. So it, it felt like I remember watching even like Control Room, which was like only kind of about the war in Iraq, uh, the night of the 2004 election, because it just felt like I didn't know what to do besides read books and watch movies about to kind of like echo my frustration. Yeah, there were so, there weren't echo chambers the way they are now. Like you, yeah. if you didn't have like a, if you didn't have like a group of friends that you could go and like sit in a bar with every Tuesday and and talk about the, the shit, like you needed stuff like that to to connect with your political anger. You need something to put your political anger into. Well, especially I was twenty one. Most of my friends were like, oh, yeah, I'm voting for Carrie, but I don't care to talk about this that much. Yeah. And, you know, like you kind of get that kind of shit, guys. This is terrible. Something's got to be done. You know, that perfect like age where you uh, you realize that shit is crazy and, and, you know, George Bush is bad and you just don't know what to do about it. But read books and watch documentaries. And that's how you get 10 straight-to-DVD documentaries about how Walmart is evil. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of feel like, like Michael Moore, he seems to have gone right up his own ass. I couldn't believe after I'd seen Xanadu, looking at his filmography and, and realizing that he directed fucking outfoxed and, like, the secret cost yeah. to high prices. You feel like he'd be either someone who loved musicals or he, his career was, like, making, like, canon movies. Like, he was just like, I made I made Death Wish 5 and I made Ninja 7 and then they wanted me to do a musical. And so, uh, or it's, it's like, yeah, like I said, like a dude who, like, actually loves musicals. And this is the, you know, his, it was, it, this was his big chance to make one and... It's not that at all. It's very workmanlike. Like he was, he was that kind of director. He's like the guy that who did all those um, Adam Sandler, like Chris Farley movies, and then like retired for a while. Well, I mean, it doesn't seem that far off, like from the ethos of the, of Xanadu, just because it seems like he was just chasing money where it was easy to get. Like y'all were saying, like, they've made a whole bunch of those movies around that time. It seems like he was just like, oh, you can make these cheap and quick and people buy them on the home video market. So let's just produce a bunch of those. You can make them with a small staff, importantly. Like, you don't need to get a shit ton of people to sign off on your big budget dream. Like, you can kind of just, you can kind of just go. It sounds like, that sounds like the theme of a musical or the plot of a musical. (laughs) (laughs) About saving the rec center? Yeah. <laughs> now that you're here, make a bunch of money <laughs> in Hollywood. Um, so, you know, so that's a weird pedigree that this movie has. Uh, this movie also has a very fucking strange pedigree in that it inspired the creation of the Golden Raspberry Awards. Which... Are, I, I want to go on the record as saying I uh, fucking hate the raspberries. That's a real world evil right there. It's everything that I don't like about bad movie culture. It's like this just sort of like snarkiness without any engagement. Like if you're going to be if you're going to be mean, be incisive. If you're going to be mean, make it a quick cut instead of like this like generic sort of like hipster detached blase bullshit where you're like, like yeah, it's an Adam Sandler movie. It must be terrible. Like like they, they don't they never have interesting picks any year. I well, I don't even think they watch the movies 
anymore. Maybe they, they don't. did at one point. Maybe but they're just like, what is, yeah. I'm sure someone just goes and looks at, uh, what were the worst reviewed movies on Rotten Tomatoes? Or what do we have a bone to pick on? Or what What do we want to personally make fun of? Like, it's, it's that lazy. And I think you're right, Peter, because it actually pisses me off in relation to Xanadu. Because I know a lot of people think this movie's bad. But I think what Mystery Science Theater 3000 at its best got right and what, like, bad movie culture is gets at its worst is there are two kinds of bad movies. There's movies that are incompetently made, and you can go down the list of all the things they do wrong, but are fun to watch and are still worth celebrating. And then there's, like, legitimately just bad movies. Um, I hate saying this, Brandon, because I know that you're a defender of this movie, but, like, Suicide Squad last year was a slog. I fucking didn't enjoy it. There's nothing fun about it. There's nothing enjoyable. I just didn't like it. I think it's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I like that even the it's Oh man, how dare you contradict me? <laughs> yeah. It takes so much effort and like justification to just say that movie's like not the worst thing ever. <laughs> that it's like probably not even worth my time to defend it as like moderately fine. Yeah, that's where I'm at but, with the um, two Snyder the two Snyder movies of the Man of Steel and uh and Batman versus Superman is I'm like, listen guys. Yeah, I think th- I think they're fine too. Yeah, they're I think fine, fine. But it takes so long to get there yeah but my point is that it, for for that example for suicide squad like that's a movie that i don't i don't feel the need to talk about that much or like give anti-awards to it's just like yeah i i didn't enjoy that and then like xanadu i think is a movie that i would be surprised if you walk out of there going okay you know maybe it wasn't all that well put together but this was goofy and this was silly and this was fun and i have that song stuck in my head so the idea that the creators of the fucking golden raspberries walked out of this movie and were like i don't know how to process my rage i guess i'm gonna put an award show to mock and like underline how bad movies like this are is like extra frustrating to me because if any movie i i don't feel like xanadu fucking deserve the creation of that level of insufferability yeah greatest way to damn a bad movie is to forget about it uh is to let the sands of history wash over it and and nobody talk about it and then it just gets forgotten the the, an advantage you know i'm not saying capitalism is the best way to handle film but an advantage to film uh, capitalism in film is that there's no way for the creator to know if you watched a movie ironically or not <laughs> which is awesome against this hipster bullshit because it's like if you watch the movie they don't care they all they all that communicates to them is that you want to see that movie again you want to see more like that movie like seeing something ironically and this like like oh yeah let's go see an adam sandler movie so afterwards we can be angry like what what purpose would your life be like and and i i also am on the board where like if you really fully enjoy something it's not actually bad like so it's a confusing thing with the golden raspberries i don't know what joy they're deriving from it and i don't know if they ever drive joy from it they gave at least they nominated like the shining for a few things like it's just nonsense that doesn't stand the test of time it's not like they're commemorating like the most ridiculous movies of a year in which case it would have value yeah i'd love but the thing about the most ridiculous movies is like that's the stuff that we're actually looking for when we watch stuff like this like we want a memorable experience and i think what 
what's interesting about stuff like Xanadu and like uh, monster trucks earlier this year is a good example of this is that we're so used to this like routine of filmmaking where like okay we know what a Marvel movie or a DCEU movie is going to look like uh more or less like there, there's like a little variation between those borders but we have a good idea of what we're going to get and you have like a year of promotion where you get all these like set details and all this like backroom dealing and casting choices and all this stuff so that by the time the movie comes out you're really over familiar with it um stuff like xanadu and i i think monster trucks like i said is a good example it's like the incompetence and like the lack of passion sort of accidentally breaks it wide open for the like these interesting accidents to happen like these like memorable uh, erratic events come out of like the collaborative art form where uh it becomes more of like an absurdist art and it becomes like more like what movies can be <laughs> in like a more exciting way i've yeah. watched a lot of stuff people consider trash and I, I also will like openly admit i have bad taste <laughs> just to like get that out of the way as like a disarming thing but i really find it interesting when stuff is accidentally allowed to be like wild and uncontrolled um and that's when you get stuff like gene kelly being dressed up like a bunch of punk mannequins in this giant pinball machine like that absurdist three minute bit in this film is more exciting to me than probably most like good competently made movies from 1980 are that i can't even name because they were so competent that they were forgettable yeah and we talked about that a little bit with like air bud and teen witch where we we actually both enjoyed those movies and those are movies that were clear that they had a premise and then everyone was trying to fill time and sometimes when you and i monster trucks kind of falls into that category too where i guarantee they had a fucking premise and nothing else they had a and first so act and maybe a third act and that there's stuff yeah exactly and so when you're just trying to fill time sometimes you get really boring movies sometimes all this weird shit happens there's a bit in monster trucks that i think is one of the best scenes of the year so far and it's exactly what you're saying there's just this montage of when uh lucas till first learns how to drive creech um and he's sort of getting the hang of like controlling the truck and like they're coexisting together and his love interest uh rides a horse next to them and they basically just go mudding for like two and a half minutes and it's this blissful like moment where the movie sort of like finds its own voice and like accidentally allows this like absurdist thing to happen just because they needed to stretch it out to like a full movie length and it has nothing to do with advancing the plot or anything it's just this weird image that like sinks a little too long to the point where it's just like almost sublime in like a weird artsy kind of way and i find that like meeting of like art and trash uh so interesting and so integral to what movies are and it feels like more honest to me than like some movies where they're like trying to sort of distract you from the fact that you're watching a product that only exists so that it makes enough money so that more movies can be made the next year it's really interesting when movies are just like accidentally nakedly honest about the fact that they just need your money (laughs) (laughs) and that well, and, and also also that whole concept of – because especially if, like if you're a big film goer and a big cinephile, you know how movies are made. So when you watch right. something like Monster Trucks and are like, this was $120 million and people <laughs> – like how many people kept signing off on this? How many people edited it together? How many like 
people did they show this to at screenings to get feedback and then all this weird shit is in this movie still <laughs> i know and they and they had people come in and re-edit it and at some point you have to i think that actually adds to it but not like in a in that kind of hate movie way where you're where you're sitting back and going how dare these people waste my time but i think that concept of like someone going guys are we doing too many drugs how did this seem like a good fucking idea for three years and now this is all we're getting on screen and i don't know more horses the 80s were a different type of time for how movie budgets worked and a lot of the stuff that we're talking about but movies like this were not this is a studio picture where they are trying to like you said brandon Okay, what do what would appeal to kids? Catchy music. We'll do a fifties musical. We'll add Olivia Newton John right off of Greece. We're gonna put ELL, which people like. We're gonna put Gene Kelly. Let's get those people that remember him from Singing in the Rain and stuff like that back in the seats. Like you're right. This is this is a naked marketing ploy of a movie that I think becomes sort of wonderful. And it kind of mixes commercialism into its basic DNA because okay, as boring as the lead is, like his conflict at work is that he's being paid to make art and like his art is business. So he has to like make these com- like literal commercials with his like talent. Play that the same not- way. <laughs> And it's just not working. Like, it, it's not something he wants to do. He doesn't feel passionate about it. And I kind of feel like the movie is, like, kind of stressing itself out. Like, where do we find this balance between art and business? <laughs> the only thing that really makes anything work in, like, a genuine sense is the fact that Gene Kelly and Olivia Newton-John are such, like, talented, easily lovable people. I guess you could lump ELO in there as well. <laughs> just being around them and watching them perform is exciting enough that the connectors don't really matter that much gene kelly can still really dance in this oh, movie he can. He looks, and he can still really like put on a he's show more spry than uh whoever well, white dude mclame ass is in the lead like he's he's got a sense of uh, of movement and direction that's like really really nice can i can i say i don't really like gene kelly in this movie I think it's kind of funny when he's being like blatantly like I am a talisman of old Hollywood. Like he like just sort of blurts out these like references like uh, Glenn Miller, Errol Flynn, vaudeville. Like yeah. he just sort of like spurts out this like bullshit about <laughs> old Hollywood past. But when he actually like shuts up and dances, you're not going to complain about Gene Kelly dancing. Exactly. Uh, there's a scene where he's alone in his apartment, like fantasizing about an old USO show that he had with the muse back in the day. I like that the movie pauses and you just watch this performer for, for what, three minutes or whatever, just doing his thing. And he's still talented at it and his age. And that's when I see like that pure exuberance you were talking about earlier, like joy on screen is just him like sort of effortlessly dancing around his apartment. The failure of this movie actually makes me feel bad for Gene Kelly because like he's like he he clearly cared about this movie more than i think a lot of people did like he clearly had his his uh his head in this which is pretty cool i think <laughs> i agree with you peter because he's also basically playing a version of gene kelly so his character is like semi autobiographical in the way that like if gene kelly didn't save money this is what he would have been like nowadays, like we're calling the old days uh, <laughs> when he was like this famous movie star. And that's that's almost like the, the minimized version of of him we get in this movie. And, I, and that's kind of supposed to be the meta joke. 
is that he's recalling all of these things from how he used to be famous and how he used to be big and all the things he used to like. I mean, there's no there's no character that comes away great in this movie. <laughs> I actually kind of disagree with with Peter. I think Olivia Newton John is is the is the best character in this movie. Uh, she is so boring when she's not dancing. And also, I, I, okay, so I don't want to I don't want to um, shit on her too much because I do really like Grease, which is a pretty classical sort of style of, of musical. Wait, you fucking like Grease? I do. Why hasn't that come up? I don't know. That's We're five weeks thing. into this no, goddamn thing. It's because I have no means of defending it. I only brought up stuff that I actually could like defend and, and chart out mentally. Like it's not fun for me to be like, I like Greece, and you're like, tell me why, and I'm like, you mean tell me more? <laughs> tell me more. Tell me more. Did you watch the whole thing? Uh-uh. I like I like uh-huh. in the second one where uh, a guy uh, convinces a girl to sleep with him by convincing her that a nuclear war is happening. Uh, that's really gross. That's disgusting but yeah uh, i have not seen grease too but that changed my perception of it it is gross <laughs> um but yeah I, I like grease and i think olivia new john but i think part of, part of the fun of grease is that it's kind of like sexy and it's kind of got uh it is funny at times but it's mostly just like kind of sexy and uh this movie is not sexy at all it feels kind of like sexually sterile and yeah, there's, like, very little scenes where I feel like there's, like, bodies moving in a way that's supposed to be enticing. And I feel like if it's being a romantic movie and it has, like, a muse in it, it's, like, it needs more scenes. Like, Olivia Newton-John has, like, there, there's way too many dance sequences, but the last 30 minutes, there's just, like, three stacked on top of each other. That's my favorite part of the movie. And then they switch over to her doing a sort of, like, a sort of grease-like thing where her hair is slicked back and she's, like, putting on, like, a tough persona. That stuff, I was like, oh, we. I wish I had more, like personality instead her muse character is just like i'm pleasant and so it's not sexy it's just like she plays a child pretty much because she has to like plead with um zeus who is a character in the film oddly enough (laughs) uh, has to plead with him for like a night out like dad can i borrow the car so i can go to this like opening of this uh music hall that i helped create like it's kind of like this like infantilizing role she has to play um and she like even asked her parents like doesn't anybody care about my feelings (laughs) Like, if you were, like, a sexual being and an autonomous person, you would just, like, fuck off and, like, leave on your own and storm out and not really, like, have to depend on these, like, parental figures to, like, give you permission. Fine, but God is also arguing with our male lead, uh, the guy from the Warriors. I say we call him that the rest (laughs) of the movie. Like, and he's losing an argument and he's acting like he's a five-year-old. Not God. The guy (laughs) from the Warriors, he's like, no, he might as well just be going, no, uh, God's like, "Uh uh-huh. Because that's basically what that discussion's like. But I actually, so, Brandon, I agree, that that part's kind of crappy. But... Because I had no interest in the male care- lead in this movie, it felt like she was on a mission that she was assigned. Right. But I like is like, yeah, sure. Uh, whatever. Uh, yeah. Why don't you do this? I don't know. And that was the appropriate amount of interest that she should have shown <laughs> in the male lead of this movie. So I actually really like her when viewed through that lens because she is like, I got to help this dumb fucking guy idiot learned to paint or something i don't care uh and she is she is treating him like it is a terrible job assignment that she can't get fired for but does need to see to completion you also have to like keep in mind that she's not human uh she's that she's a magic pixie dream ghost or whatever we called her earlier like 
she basically just sort of roller skating around in this like kind of ditzy, uh, airheaded kind of way, where she never really says anything of substance, um, and becomes like a real person to us. And uh, if you want to go back to Greece, like that hopelessly devoted to you ballad she has is like such an earnest, um, heart wrenching moment of drama and when she sings a similar ballad to this after her dad tells her that she can't borrow the car uh or whatever means she needs to get to the xanadu club from zeus uh it just doesn't hit with the same impact because we never really get any sort of like emotional development from her she basically is just only there to, to lift up these other two dudes and it sort of like requires her to be this sort of like childish floating through life figure to accomplish that and that's just not sexy like it's like watching like a little kid or like a i don't know somebody's like dazed out on drugs just sort of like drifting around exactly Um, exactly and the movie not being really all that funny like the movie has funny sequences like i agree with you like the the dressing up gene kelly thing is actually funny the movie like doesn't really have any strong attempts at actual comedy and I think Olivia Newton-John you is actually you, funny in Greece, isn't she? Am I remembering wrong? Like, I feel like they had people that could have been... Um, Michael Beck is not funny. You don't like it when he's trying to make Tuesday Wednesday? Oh, God, dude. <laughs> oh. That line is poison. I know, I know. <laughs> it's comedy that poison. Might, <laughs> it might have been when I got up and started pacing around, like... <laughs> like, I can't fucking watch I this movie tonight. I need drugs. Yeah, that's that might have been when I went and got drugs. Was it around the hour mark? <laughs> Actually, my biggest laugh in the movie, though, speaking of the comedy, is unintentional. <laughs> it's when uh, the guy from the Warriors drives his car off the pier and into the water. This is right before he meets Gene Kelly for the first time, because he's trying to chase Olivia Newton-John, and. He lets out a scream that is supposed to be probably like a slightly comic scene because the scene is played for comedy. And instead, he lets out a blood-curdling terror scream (laughs) (laughs) that is is so wildly inappropriate for the scene. Like, Like, it was like the director told him, okay, so scream like you're gonna die. And... You will be dead in the next scene. This is the last we're going to see of your character because it is like a full on. <laughs> like, it's not funny. It's not supposed. <laughs> it is like over modulating a comedy scream to a level I have never seen before. And I could not stop laughing and i rewound it three times because <laughs> just it was five feet and he he is a little bit of a baby <laughs> at best and but he's going to die right i mean his character must have yeah the scream is telling you that he's about to suffer a horrible watery death do you remember that scream either of you because it is amazing no, that went, that got past me. Oh my god! Um, re-rent the movie, Brandon. <laughs> I still have Britney's copy, so maybe I'll spin it a third time. God, <laughs> but I think you're. I think you're right. Like the accidental comedy bits are like really what stands out instead of like when it intentionally makes jokes. Uh, there's a sequence when they go through this recording studio that is basically a bunch of fake movie sets, and it's supposed to be built just for inspiration while you're recording records. So it'll like make it rain indoors. Or, or, oh, uh, yeah. A nightlight, uh, like a cityscape 
at night on a rooftop. Uh, there's a scene where they roller skate past a desert, and these like palm trees sort of raise up like boners. Um, <laughs> it's probably the sexiest thing in it the is, whole movie. It is um, just like in Iraq. It's so weird because they're pulled up on these strings and they're sort of swaying as they pull. It's, <laughs> it's very, very boner. It's very phallic. Yeah, and I don't know, stuff like that, or like Olivia Newton-John like will roller skate and turn into a beam of light, and nobody like freaks out until they puke because the laws of physics have been broken. Yeah. Like, they just sort of like shrug it off, like, oh, where'd she go? Um, I, I find that kind of stuff like a lot more interesting and funny than like any like deliberate jokes, but I don't think you're really watching this movie for like the tight comedy writing in the first place. <laughs> uh, well, I don't think this movie actually thinks it's a comedy. I just think that some people were like, can we try this today? Because everything you've been doing, Robert, isn't working. Uh, the, the, other, the other really funny part, I think, again, very accidental, is right before – I don't want to say my favorite scene in the movie. But the part that I almost wanted to cheer, which I want to get to in just a second, which is where he thinks he's lost a living Newton John forever and is sad roller skating. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I've always wanted to see sad roller skating and he is like hunched shoulders, swaying his body back and forth down Santa Monica probably and just sad roller skating to just drive those blues away. That's kind of like Kevin Bacon's like sad uh, warehouse dancing in yeah. um, Footloose. <laughs> Another part that made me really laugh was when they first get to the club. And this is before they've had their big like the tubes fantasy where they sort of imagine what they want it to be. And they just see this old, um, beautiful Art Deco architecture, just like gorgeous bones for like a really beautiful building. And they both look at it and they go, this piece of shit. <laughs> yeah. Gene Kelly's like, they used to have wrestling here. This is garbage. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know what? It looks nice enough to be a fucking album cover. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When he paints it with a few lasers outlining it, apparently it's like the most beautiful thing in the world, but they just like scoff at the way it looks from the outside when like anybody in their right mind would like love to live there. You know, like, it's like yeah. gorgeous. Like palace. they complain that it's like too big. Like, it is, like uh, 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 all right, this place is basically being used as, like, a dumpster, and, like, you could get it for, like, a song, apparently. Well, in fairness, I, th I think they're right, because uh, the club does look very empty at the end. Yeah, most of the audience is performers, uh, <laughs> and it's the, it's the same performers from the Tubes number, which were, like, not real people. It was, like, a mental projection of what could possibly be there so, so to see the same people come back and perform it's like are these two people just sort of like tripping out in this empty <laughs> building and imagining something that they built together well and it's like it, it's yeah it's actually just two homeless kinda... people that take uh take jankum and go in, and break into a building and like what if we opened a club it's gonna be the best club <laughs> well, when you first meet Gene Kelly, he's just playing clarinet on the beach, kind of bumming around. So it makes more sense than him being a millionaire that just has nothing to do with this. Time. <laughs> and in real life, the the actual thing is like uh, a like broken bottle with like some holes drilled in the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make your snake rise with my clarinet. <laughs> oh God, fifty dollars. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's also nice that club. I mean, when. Olivia Newton-John changes her genre of music. They provide new costumes for the entire audience. So I think that's nice. 
multiple costume changes as well for everyone around. Yeah, like, get the audience in a cowboy hat if she's singing country now. Or that, like, embarrassing uh, fantasy of what punk is supposed to look like. So they just, like, kind of poof up her hair a little bit and put her in a um, leopard print number. Are you saying? <laughs> it just, like, has no edge to it. Are you punk is harder than that? In which case, I have, I have no interest in that particular activity. <laughs> oh, that's not what Sum 41 told me, Brandon. <laughs> if they had somehow captured, like, what California, like, hardcore punk sounded like at that time and actually put it in that moment for about 30 seconds, this movie would have been, like, an all-time classic. <laughs> uh, just to have that, like, breakneck switch to, like, actual, like, guttural, passionate music when there's really nothing passionate about the movie – no, it's so, it's so artificial that the ending twist is that that whole performance, like she did not get a day pass from God. Instead, that was all in his head. And instead, the bar is basically empty. But a waitress working there looks like Olivia Newton-John. Yeah, I mean, the whole, hiring these the whole movie's based... The whole movie's based on a poem about, like, a uh, vision that this person had in a dream. Uh, so, I, I guess I kind of see what they're going at, where, like, the mix of, like, fantasy and reality is, like, this sort of, like, hazy cloud where nothing's very solid. Uh, but whenever you th- apply any sort of, like, regular logic to those moments, it all falls apart so easily. Yeah, but why have the fucking scene, then, where he goes and argues with God? <laughs> like where he like he roller skates head on into a mural and likely just breaks his neck and dies <laughs> we might as well just go into scenes we want to talk about because besides the a couple of the scenes i mentioned that was my like i want to stand up on the couch and cheer moment because as i'm watching this and he's looking at those the the mural i'm like please fucking roller skate into the mural please please, <laughs> please. roller skate into that fucking mural Please do it. And it takes a little bit. He sits, he looks at it, he really stares it down, and then he starts going. And I'm like, this is like Airbud gonna get put into the final game. He's gonna roller skate into the fucking mural. And I was not disappointed. I really wanted him to just run into uh, it is a brick wall because the movie is so humorless that I was like, that would be an amazing joke for the third act. And also to prove that, like, <laughs> It'd be a way to, to elaborate that he's not magic. He's ground to our reality and, you know, the muse has to come to him. Also, it would have helped the point that, like, you know, the muse is, like, a fickle thing and it leaves maybe when you're not ready for it to leave. Like, it, instead, it was just, he was just like, yeah, I found a magical portrait and I ran right through it. It was fine. And then I uh, <laughs> had a five-year-old off with God. <laughs> in a laser dome oh, yeah. are there any other types of domes <laughs> well there's a thunder dome oh that's true that's true I just wanted to talk uh, about I, him flying into that cement wall it's pretty beautiful <laughs> um, and hellish if it wasn't in disco color <laughs> if this movie were like a metal movie and that was like a portrait of like a hellscape like that would be pretty be pretty scary actually I hope he tries it I, with more murals yeah I, I hope <laughs> tries it with the painted world of Ariamas. I'm not convinced he survived the first attempt. <laughs> I think the movie might have just ended with him dying. <laughs> this movie is such fodder for that bullshit internet fan theory thing. We're like, what if he was dead the whole time? <laughs> <laughs> I like P- I like Peter's theory that they're just two homeless crackheads being like, and then we're gonna <laughs> fix it all up. And I'm a painter, and I paint bigger CD covers. <laughs> 
Well, if I could bring up uh, one more scene, I, I like when she has to like talk to him like a child and explain that she is like a goddess, um, and she keeps telling him like, "No, I'm not real." I've been doing all these like fantastical things because I'm not a human person. <laughs> he's just not buying it. Uh, so she reveals this divinity to him through a dictionary where he like reads the definition of muse. It has like his name directly addressing him. It's like warriors, dude, look up. I'm a muse. <laughs> um, uh, immediately that goes to like an old gangster, like noir film where she injects herself into the scene and like the characters start deliberately talking to him from the television. <laughs> I think that scene kind of works in like a Robert Zemeckis kind of way. Like it's kind of like an interesting, goofy, sort of surprisingly competent, moment of comedy in a movie where like we were saying earlier most of the intentional comedy is so flat yeah i i like that too as well um yeah aaron do you yeah mine was roller skate and wall based exclusively (laughs) um i'll say this so we didn't talk much about uh don bluth who went on to do stuff like land before time and five goes west and a lot of competing animated hand-drawn disney movies in the 80s and 90s uh he does a scene in this movie and i think that is indicative of i would have liked for more weird digressions like that that kind of whatever you want to do just do it for a scene i think that's why i really like the last half hour because they have that scene they have the gene kelly dress-up scene and then they have the full, I'm going to run into the painting scene, and I'm going to fight with God in a laser dome scene, and I'm going to, then Xanadu. Like, it, ha- it has kind of the whole thing. And it just is b- one after the other of weird, and at, at the very least, visually interesting, and a lot of times musically interesting scenes. Uh, and I think I think if the whole movie was like that, this is also, kind of, I guess, kind of my wrap-up, but... If the whole movie was like that, I think I'd give this a five-star movie that I would watch all the time. Um, I would definitely watch this again. I'm positive on it, but I will fast-forward quite a bit of it next time. I think the tube scene is such a necessary evil for the movie to get its, like, frustrated, like, explaining to the audience this is what we're trying to do out of the way. That once it's over, it can kind of breathe, and that's when it just sort of, like, gives itself into the fantasy. And that's where you get that final 40-minute sugar rush of just, like, nonstop ridiculous bullshit. Um, <laughs> Dude, which, you're right. It does feel frustrated. It feels like they're, like, they like it's so over-labored and it's not well-edited because they show you way too much of each each performance. Like, they'll show you, like, a 45 second of a performance and then another 45 seconds of the other performance before they jump back. Like, it's – you're right. It's so it's so frustrated. That's a good word for it. I'm glad you guys agree with me. Great song. Great scene. <laughs> Leads into even better scenes. All on the same page. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I So, I think that the, the sort of drawness that starts off the movie, like, that could be an amazing twist if, like, as soon as the muse comes in right after, like, that uh, – the scenes that she's in actually start getting more colorful and crazy and weird. But like, she's not even that colorful and crazy and weird. Like she is not even a very good manic pixie dream girl. Cause she doesn't come in and like make you laugh. There's no like make a noise, funny noise that uh, no one's ever heard before or whatever. There's nothing even like that where you're like, you at least have to engage in it. It's just so like placid and flat. Um, so yeah, I agree. When the movie the movie just treats itself like what it is, which is this loosely connected set of musical scenes and just decides to throw sequences at you, it's fun. But 
the movie didn't seem to realize that everything that the white dude does is boring. Like, he is this big fucking anchor in the center of the movie, <laughs> just dragging it down. That's part of it's, like, cooked up by a bunch of producers feeling, <laughs> though. It's like, how are we going to center this story? Oh, we'll just, like, get an everyday white guy to lead it, which is pretty much how most, like, by-the-numbers Hollywood movies are made. And it feels just as boring as this sort of like paint by numbers job that job that he has, where he has to paint these album covers bigger. Like it's just sort of like this is what you do. Oh, um, I don't this know. is how you a make white a movie. guy in our movie. I don't think that's gonna work. <laughs> well, hold on a second. Hold on. Before you dismiss it outright, he has a mullet. <laughs> Shut the fuck up. You're booked. All the budget you need. Also, also he doesn't really look like he's having fun when he roller skates. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what would a gender flipped version of this look like where like nine Magic Mike kind of muses come out of this uh, portrait and, and skate around like shirtless <laughs> to inspire yeah. Olivia Newton-John? In the, in the 80s, this movie, that muse would have a fucking, like, sweet, sick mustache. Like, <laughs> oh my god. Like, more than a Tom Selleck, more like a, a Freddie Mercury one. Like, it kind of has, like, some volume to it. Well, I actually think it would be really offensive because, again, <laughs> Olivia Newton-John, I it works that she's like, I don't care about anything you say, you're the worst. I'm going to say some platitudes. If that was, like, gender-reversed, it would be wildly offensive. I feel like <laughs> if, if, like, there's just some dude who's like, yeah, I don't know, maybe go paint something. It'd be like, man, this guy's a dick. But it works because – it works for me because that – the guy from The Warriors is, like, a vapid version of every, like, 80s artsy fake guy – and so her calling him on the bullshit works. Gender reverse in the 80s. That would just be misogynist bullshit. She keeps the mood light, too. Like, I I like her more in this movie than it sounds like y'all do. Or at least Peter does. She's my um, favorite just character in the movie. I, I actually really like her. Yeah. I mean, her and Gene Kelly, I think, are both very charming in this. Um, but the movie really doesn't ask much of them besides just being charming. Like, it just allows them to, like, float through and perform and... It feels most natural when that's all they're doing is just like dancing or singing. Um, those connector bits is like when it uh, actually has to like have dialogue and plot. It, it maybe doesn't work as well, but um, there's some really great moments that they both get across when they are allowed to just do their thing and perform. But at least Peter and I agree. ELO, fantastic. So thank you for being on, Brandon. But we're going to keep Peter as the guest host, I think, going forward. Um, I like that I'm still the guest host. Oh, yeah. <laughs> your, it's your show. It is, it is not my show. Um, it, is, it is not I'm my show returning. at all. I'm a guest host every week. Now I feel really bad because I did not mean to undermine your role in this podcast. <laughs> at all. Yeah, I hope to have you back a lot faster than whatever, seven months, eight months. Yeah, we did The Fly uh, last Halloween season. Yeah, I have a lot of fun. I mean, I listen to y'all every week, so. <laughs> yeah, so we, and we listen to your show when it comes out. It, it was insane. Uh, Swamp Flicks is a lot of fun. One episode I would specifically recommend of Swamp Flicks is you did one recently on uh, Brian Yesna. Oh, my God, yeah. And Screaming Mad George. Yeah, we watched all 10 of their collaborations, which was a lot of goo yeah, and goop. That was fun because even when I could tell like the movie was kind of tiring for you guys, it sounded like you, you guys always had something fun to say. So, yeah, definitely check out Swamp um yeah thanks for coming on brandon thank you so much Brandon, do you have anything to promote 
Um, well, Swamp yeah, do you Flicks. Mind if we promote you seven more times in the show? <laughs> uh, I think our recent podcast episode on Barbed Wire and Casablanca was an interesting listen. Uh, it was my first time watching Casablanca. Uh, and my second time watching Barbed Wire, so <laughs> that might be a unique perspective on <laughs> how those two movies work together. Uh, and if you really want to see a classic Hollywood film reinterpreted as a biker chick dystopia, I don't think you're going to get a better fit than those two movies. I'm going to download that for my plane ride on Wednesday. <laughs> next week, I'm going to be in Mexico, so there's no new episode next week. Uh, sorry to disappoint everyone, uh, but I'm going to be with my wife. You want, you want to do that again? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I really went down there, didn't I? <laughs> like tone wise, not great. My wife. My wife. My wife. My wife. My wife. Doesn't listen to this. Uh, no. And don't worry, I'll loop my wife about six. My wife. We'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> I'm just gonna start doing it for you, so the effect is ruined. Like. So I'm going down to Mexico with my wife, my wife, my wife. <laughs> I thought I was having a stroke the first time that happened. Yeah, me too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was something that no one ever commented on. No one commented on directly to me. So I just assumed everybody hated it. And then I kept doing it because it was funny. Well, and finally, someone assumed it was an audio glitch. So, so like, even though it's been done multiple times, no one is getting the fucking joke, Peter. <laughs> uh, I thought by the third time where it goes down to more. Wife. Like I thought someone would. But then you did it, it on purpose. You, then you did it when I said like my da- I have I have a good dad or something like that, and you did the <laughs> no, same funny. thing. <laughs> that made me laugh too. Even you no, know, it says it's what was it? I have a great dad. Yeah, I love my. Yeah, dad. I love. I, I love said my I love my dad. dad. And you're like dad. I love my dad. I love my dad. I love my dad. <laughs> like even I didn't really get it. <laughs> but but it's fine you know what i'm look look peter i am not one to judge doing things that only i find funny on this podcast so you know what as a true co-host you do you buddy thank you so much so uh the week after that we actually haven't named this uh month but for june we're doing cinematic twins i guess is how we've kind of been saying it internally at all of our company meetings <laughs> Um, so we'll just stick with that for now. So we're doing Cinematic Twins, uh, and the first week we are doing Little Big League and uh, Rookie of the Year. We're actually, I guess I should have prefaced it by saying we're covering two movies uh, every week that came out the same year and are very similar. So uh, first, yeah, first week we're doing Rookie of the Year and Little Big League and Anthony Pizzo? Pizzo? Uh, Pizzo? Pizzo? Say it three. Say it say like five different ways, and then we'll ask him. Pizza. Aaron, can you say uh, five more variations on it, just so uh, I can edit the right one in? Pizza. This is the soft O version. Probably. <laughs> uh, we'll be guesting. Uh, maybe he'll still. Maybe if he doesn't listen to this episode, he he will join us. Uh, ju- the next week we are doing uh, Red Planet: Mission to Mars, and we are hoping to have our first ever. Double guests in different locations. We're still coordinating that right now, but we're hoping to have Douglas Lamont and Michael Garneri. That's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, that might be a very contentious one too. Yeah, I yeah, 
yeah, Peter and I have spoke a little bit about our Mission to Mars feelings, and they are differing. <laughs> uh, then we're going to do uh, Deep Star 6 versus Leviathan as the next pair up, and that's just going to be Aaron and I. All right, so, and then uh, after June, where we have our uh, team-ups of the uh, clone movies... We're going to have uh, our first listener chosen month for July. We're going to send out a poll uh, with around this ep- when this episode comes out on our uh, on our Facebook page and our Twitter, and it's going to be hosted on our website. And we're going to try and get as many responses as we can uh, because we're going to give you four options for the poll. Um, so go to the Facebook to help us vote on that, and uh, you will determine what we watch for the entire month of July because we had four fun ideas uh first one is doing time and space which is a movie about future jails specifically space jails a uh, month not a movie fig- there'll be four of them yeah and then uh the next one would be carping about carpenter which would be uh the lesser john carpenter works because we're going to be doing all of all of his other movies fit into other months uh we've already done the thing we're going to do escape from new york in another month like there's there's the carpenter stuff will get covered but we want to do the the more outlier carpenter stuff uh next one is summer camp which is uh movies that take place at a summer camp maybe horror maybe not and uh, the last one is Sore Thumbs, which is movie adaptations of video games. We've already done Super Mario Brothers, so that would be not in the running. Uh, but, uh, yeah. So, Brandon, just hearing that, what would you vote for, hypothetically? Ooh, tough call between Carpenter and the video games for me. Um, <laughs> I wonder what Carpenter movies you would pick for that. No, we're not uh, telling you. That's I know. Part of the That's... Polls. Uh, That's probably why I would vote for that one, just to like see what would come up, because there's so many to choose from. Yeah, just like, yeah. Just like weird... voting in an election, you get a general sense of what they're going for, <laughs> but you don't know what they're going to do specifically. Yeah. You just get into the minutia of Ghost of Mars every week. <laughs> we just get like further into it. <laughs> I uh, don't want to spoil anything, but I have been pushing to get Ghost of Mars on this show because I really, I really like that movie. <laughs> and uh, one person who votes in the poll, uh, obviously we're able to collect every username that votes because of the NSA. Uh, one, of, one of you will win uh, at random. We'll draw names if you vote and you'll win an unopened copy of uh, Pulp Fiction on Blu-ray. Wow, it's pretty fancy. <laughs> yep. Uh, As someone who only owns one Blu-ray, I am definitely entering in that contest. <laughs> Free shipping yes. to your address. Uh, we'll, we'll send it your way. So we're going to try to – I know we've talked a lot of, time, uh, a lot of times on this uh, podcast recently about getting more polls and audience interaction. But I think we're going to try to do what other professional podcasts do and offer random prizes they have sitting around their house. So – uh so yeah so we'll 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 give that to to one lucky person who votes in the poll so we hope that when you do see that show up on your news feed i'm sure we'll promote it a few times but we hope that you uh give it a button press and you could win a fabulous prize that you can also get for seven dollars at any target (laughs) but you get it for zero dollars and this is, uh, just to, to say, this is not uh, the only type of uh, listener-supported thing we're going to do in the future. We might have you pick from specific movies instead of themes. We might have, uh, you know, one week out of the month uh, be, you know, listener, just pick listener's pick. 
Um, so yeah, that's uh, that's all I gotta say on uh, on the listener stuff for now. Please vote in our July poll. <laughs> I like that you Forrest Gumped the ending, <laughs> and that's yeah, all I have to say it's... about listener month. <laughs> <laughs> that's what happens when I get sleepy and uh, didn't have coffee before I did this. Yeah. So <laughs> no. uh, this is how my transitions go, and that's the end of that. And that's the way Thank it you for was. announcing that clearly. <laughs> <laughs> and that's all she wrote. And Brandon, thank you for coming on. He went on to do his own podcast the following week, and that's the rest of the story. <laughs> <laughs> I'm suddenly eight years old again. <laughs> In the back of my car. I, I told Brandon that maybe he should start a podcast about swamps, and that's how Swamp Flex got started. Good night and good luck. listening to we love to watch if you want to get in touch with us please reach out to us at either our website wltwpodcast.com or our facebook group facebook.com backslash we love to watch and uh yeah reach out to us give us some feedback give us some support uh, suggest movies for the show all that we are also available on soundcloud TuneIn, stitcher and itunes thanks for listening